Last week, just to get a running start, we learned about the depth of sin that's in every one of us. To deny it is to deny what Scripture clearly says, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're, we're not being real with ourselves if we do not, at a baseline, admit and understand we have sins that need to be dealt with, that need to be curbed and curtailed by others within the body. We are no match um, for ourselves if we just try to deal with ourselves alone as some kind of independent island. Galatians five nineteen and 21 is the fruit of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh that are in every one of us. It's within our DNA and these are what we deal with and what weaken our faith if we're not battling well. And it's what takes us out of strong, effective ministry where we want to use our spiritual gifts to build each other up in the body of Christ and where we need each other to pull each other up and out of sin patterns where we can't fight them just by ourselves. When we join ourselves to the flesh, it's joining ourselves to the world and joining the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to the world. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that this is a prostituting of the gospel. It's a prostituting of Christian life and it's unholy and what grieves the Holy Spirit in the church. We as our primary mission should be longing for and loving holiness. Holiness is convicting. It's exposing. It, it's a searchlight on the darkness of our souls, right? I mean, none of us want to go under the microscope of God's holiness and yet God's holiness is something that we must contend with and learn to love because out of being holy comes true worship and fellowship. And it, it creates a community when it is holy that is attractive to others because it so stands in contrast to the world. The world says, what do they have going on in there, in their community that we don't have going on out here? They have a clear conscience. How do they come by something like that? False teachers in the church will try to counterfeit holiness and try to say that you can gain holiness by doing things instead of being a follower of Christ in Christ's life. And so we need to take holiness seriously and love it and love it together. As Warren Wiersbe said, we don't need to just be winning the lost, which we should be winning the lost, but we should also be winning the saved. We need to win each other to love holiness, and that puts us on a ministry and mission of restoration where we should be pursuing each other. We've been talking about motivations to restore, and the points of my outline aren't classically called motivations grammatically, but the thrust and the heart behind each point is the motivation, the why and the what that we need to be about when we pursue others to restore them. There are six of them that I want to get through um, all six this morning, we covered the first two last time. The first one is repent of personal sins. The first driving motivation when you're restoring someone is to look inside, not look critically outwardly at people with vain conceit where you're looking down on people with some sort of superiority complex or looking up to them with an inferiority complex where you're afraid to talk to somebody. We don't want to look down on them. We don't want to look up to them. We want to pursue them with a spirit 
of gentleness. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is where Paul is talking about the community of faith. He's saying that someone has been caught up in a sin. They've been overtaken by this sin. The sin has outrun them in their lives and they're ensnared. They're, they're trying to fight it off in their own strength, but they can't get there from here. And so when someone's caught in a transgression, someone who is spiritual should seek to restore them. Oftentimes people will say, well, that person gets what they get and they deserve what they're going through because of what they've done and what they won't repent themselves out of, right? It's the critical spirit of saying, well, that person now can just stew in his or her own juices. And that is exactly the wrong attitude to have as a believer. We don't want to look critically at them. Verse 26 of chapter 5, let us not become conceited. Let's not be self-absorbed. Let's not be provoking. Let's not be envying. Let's not be people who, who are critical in our spirits. But instead, look at these brothers and sisters in Christ who are ensnared and caught up in a sin and put yourself in a spiritual mindset so that you can restore someone. What does that mean? You who are spiritual. A lot of times people say, well, I'm not spiritual enough to restore someone. I've been in sins in my own situation. I need to be pulled out of my own things. Well, this can apply to all kinds of spiritual realities, right? We need to give, we need to serve, we need to evangelize, and we need to pursue people and restore people in the body of Christ. So how do we get there from here? Well, repent of your sin, share it with someone that you need help with, help from, and then pursue them. Then evangelize, repent, and then give, repent, and then serve. But we need to be willing to put ourselves under the Holy Spirit of God, yielding ourselves to him, abiding in Christ, so that we can get there and get out on the field again and restore people. Don't use the idea of, I am not spiritual enough, so I'm not going to restore somebody else in the body of Christ. That would be wrong thinking. We restore them in a spirit of gentleness by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the soil of restoration is, is the soil of softness. It's being yielded to God where God is building gentleness in your life so that you can restore people and bring them back. We don't want to be pharisaical. We don't want to be like the mobs of the New Testament who are trying to perform an external righteousness through Phariseeism, not through humility, not through the Holy Spirit, but we want to be humble and bold. We covered last time, what do you do? Who should do it? Those who are spiritual. What do you do? You restore them, verse 1. Restore is catartizo. It's the idea of mending a net. In Mark's gospel, it talked about the apostles that were, were mending a net thoroughly. It was the idea of being very attentive to it, not just putting it together in five minutes, but it's taking a long period of time to set your equipment right to be able to catch fish. And so when you're mending someone's life, you're restoring it and you're saying to that person, I'm committed to you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to walk with you. What's the most convicting and most helpful way to restore someone? Commit to pray for that person and tell them that you're going to pray for that person. And then pray for that person and then tell that person that you're praying for that person. And then pray with that person 
and bring scripture to that person and walk with that person and don't leave that person. When somebody has fallen down, you, you pick them up, but you don't just pick them up and say, now go run, boy. You got it, you know? Here's the ball, run. No, you go with them, alongside them. You're in a spirit of restoring that person. You are restoring a broken bone. That word ketartizo is used for that as well. It's the idea that you are performing a long-term surgical procedure with that person. You're putting the cast on that broken arm, and that cast needs to stay on that arm for a long period of time so the bone can grow back together and even stronger than it was before. You do it also in a spirit of gentleness because it's the picture of taking the speck out of someone's eye. You've dealt with your own log. You've dealt with your own sins. You've repented already. And now you're doing very fine, very specific, precise surgery in gentleness to help a person in their Christian life again. And then the warning at the end, keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted Oftentimes, the temptation when you're restoring someone else is to think, you know, I'm absolutely fine. I'm better than this person. And instead of that, we should stay humble. We should be realizing that we too are vulnerable to the same sins of the person that's been caught up in a sin that needs to be restored. Well, all of this brings us to verse 2 of chapter 6. And this is our next um, motivation not only do we, uh, do we re- repent of our own sins and we, we rescue someone who's fallen down, well, point three is to remove heavy burdens. Cain's irresponsible question is a good lead-in to verse two. Am I my brother's keeper, Cain said in Genesis 4-9? Well, this should be answered in the New Testament church. If a man is my brother, then I am his keeper. I'm to care for him in love and be concerned for his welfare. What does this look like? This looks like command, a command given in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christianity cannot be lived in isolation. It cannot be lived with a mindset of self-absorption. This is the idea that I am willing to put myself literally underneath someone, physically if necessary, right? If they, if they really did need a hand up, you would want to physically bear their burden. If you see a lady walking along with a heavy suitcase, who's not going to go, hey, can I help you physically pull that along or help you with that? But This is speaking more in terms of the spiritual life where we literally are coming under the weight that someone is going through in their circumstances. Spiritual weight, emotional weight, psychological weight. We are coming underneath that person so that the weight can be distributed evenly on the shoulders. Martin Luther said, this is the kind of work that requires strong shoulders and mighty bones. It's hard work in Christianity. This is four times that this word bearing was was used or is used in this context. If you look back up at Galatians 5 verse 10, it talks about those who were troubling the church, the Judaizers, the false teachers. They will bear the penalty, whoever it is. They're going to bear a future judgment. Uh, 6.5 says that Christians are called to bear their own load. And in 6.17, Paul says, I bear the marks of Jesus Christ in my own body. These are significant statements of heavy, significant weight. 
This, these are weighty commands, weighty ideas. There's gravity here. And verse 2 is no exception. It's the load that Christians bear underneath those who feel oppressed and those who feel depressed. Now, here's the question. In this context of verse 1, we're talking about people caught up in sins. Well, are the burdens that we're supposed to bear and come under only sins in particular? I think actually Paul is talking more widely here, though it does connect to verse 1. Allow me just to broaden the categories for a minute because people are burdened by things beyond sins. People fulfill the law of Christ by bearing things more than just bearing people's sins. People go through spiritual persecution. Anytime someone is bold in the Christian life, they're persecuted. And that's something that we need to help people bear. People um, bear all kinds of situations and circumstances that are very difficult within the body of Christ. Verses 2 through 5 are talking about burdens that we bear in a way that, that is how we should treat people within the body of Christ. This is a mindset of how we are to be within the broader community. We all have burdens that God, um, that God allows us to have, but we're not intended just to carry these burdens alone. People are caught in sin, but that's not the only way that someone is burdened. The Western mindset that we live in, and I just say this, the media, it pumps individualism. It does. The Eastern world lives in community. They understand family. A lot of the rest of the world, actually, you don't leave your family. You never relocate. People stay together. Maybe in the 21st century, people are moving away more from their parents and and the like. But in general, people live together in community, and they understand that more than we do. Here in Alaska, we have a uniqueness because of the weather, because of how a lot of us are transplanted up here, and we become community in a way that perhaps the lower 48 doesn't understand. So maybe we will dial into this passage a little bit more easily, but we need to understand that God answers a prayer and a promise through bearing each other's burdens. What do I mean by that? Well, he promises in... Psalm 55 and 1 Peter, that if we cast our cares upon him, he will care for us. He calls us to cast our cares upon the Lord, right? And I think the individual mindset says, well, God is sufficient. The Lord is sufficient. I will cast my cares upon him. He cares for me. And so I'm good. I don't need to share my burden with anybody else, right? I've done it. I've taken care of business with Christ. We know about it. And that's all, that's as far as I need to go in my Christian walk. That's an individualistic mindset. That's a Western mindset misapplied to biblical spirituality. Christianity is not a solo sport. It is something where we should be broadening out our burdens amongst others within the body of Christ. There's a lot of people that will use... The idea of casting their cares upon the Lord as a misguided excuse. I remember my first year at Christian College. I think it was my first semester. My roommate and I grew pretty close. You know, so we had a good relationship. We had two other guys in the room. We didn't really connect with them very much. But my roommate and I were both studying in ministry together. And so 
we were there. And he somehow broke his leg. I forget if he went home or came back, but he was on crutches suddenly. And I said, hey, let me carry your backpack. We were in the Blue Ridge Mountains and, you know, there's all kinds of rocky terrain and um, curves and things. And just trying to get him to class, I wanted to carry his books for him. And he, I just never forget, he's, you know, no, 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 I've got it, you know, don't. Don't touch the door. I, I got it. You know, no problem. And I'm going, man, you know, what is this? You know, forgive me, Judy, but Yankee pride that was going on. I mean, I'm just like, come on, you know, open up, man. But um, he, he wouldn't, he wanted to go it alone. And I think a lot of times in the spiritual realm, as especially in the, the atmosphere of Alaska, we are so interdependent upon each other when the weather gets rough and, hey, I'm still, I'm stranded on the side of the road. If you don't let me in the house, I'm going to die. And so, yes, come in, eat my food. You know, but otherwise, there's this, this wide swing of the pendulum to the other side of rugged individualism where it's like, don't touch me. I've got my own thing. I don't need you. You don't need me. And there, there's got to be this sweet spot in the middle where we are willing to go there with each other and help each other within the body of Christ. Some people will misconstrue what I just said into neediness, which is swinging the pendulum all the way the other way. And the Bible doesn't call us to be overly needy either. Charles Spurgeon picked up on this. He, he was talking about how people will twist and misconstrue this idea where we are to help one another. So therefore, please help me. You know, hey, I need help, you know. And he, he was saying, where is the man whom I am to help? Yet, that's the attitude we should have, yet such is selfishness, the selfishness of our own nature, that we might right away say, quote, this text is a cow. How can I milk it? And he goes, no, that's, that's not the right attitude to have at all. Not only are we not bearing one another's burdens or our brother's burden, but also we're thrusting our burden onto someone else, and we're not exchanging our burden with someone else. So we don't want to take the path of isolation, and we also don't want to take the path of being overly needy. Yes, Christ, Isaiah 53, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, uh, our sins have been laid on him. All of that's been dealt with in the cross, and that is salvation. But there's this whole other messy part of our lives and lifetime called sanctification, and that is Biblical holiness, where we walk in the life of this, we walk in our life and lifetime, and we're battling with our flesh, and we're trying our best to repent of our sins. We get caught up in our sins. We get, we get ensnared in sin patterns, and we need someone to say to us, can I help you? And we need to be those people who help other people out of their bog that they have fallen into. It comes through human friendship. Listen, Christ says, cast all your cares upon me and so that he can care for us. Jesus says to the burden, you know, the, the load is easy and the burden is light, but how does he minister to us? How does he make good on the promise to lighten our load, to bear our burdens in the Christian life? You know what he does? He often sends people within the body of Christ to fulfill that promise. How does he lighten our load? He sends people. It comes through Christian friendship. 
oftentimes. Let me show this to you in Paul's life and his career as a missionary. Remember, he reached out to the Corinthian church. He found out that they were in all kinds of sins, and he wrote 1 Corinthians. Well, we read 2 Corinthians, where he is really fretting about a letter that he had sent where he had confronted them about all of their sins, their sins of division, their sins of immorality. And he was really worked up to the point where he couldn't rest. And probably there was a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that was the severe letter confronting them. And he was bound up. And 2 Corinthians 7 verse five and verses 5 and 6 speaks of what Paul was going through. It says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, the word downcast in the New American Standard is the word depressed. Paul was depressed over this church. He was, he was messed up on the outside and on the inside over what, what their response was going to be to his confrontation. He was in anguish, but he says that he was comforted. By the coming of Titus, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. God used human friendship to deliver Paul from his depression and his anxiety. It wasn't prayer that was mentioned here. It wasn't him necessarily waiting on the Lord. All those things are inbounds to what Paul was doing, I'm sure. But the release for Paul came through friendship. The question is, do you have sufficient, a sufficient amount of Christian friends? And they're going to be on all levels, right? But do you have someone who knows you, who knows your weaknesses, who knows the burdens that you truly are carrying inside your heart? Well, verse 1 should not be ignored in light of bearing one another's burdens. Um, When someone has fallen into sin and you lift them up, if you leave them alone... They are going to be assaulted. And you know this if you've been in a sin and you've come out of it. Oftentimes, we are most vulnerable to Satan's attacks and direct assaults where he wants us to fall right back into the sins we've just been delivered from. Typically, right after a spiritual victory, Satan's most severest attack will come. And so we don't need to leave people alone in their burdens, for them to fall back into sin's temptations. It's important to understand that to be freed from a sin is not always to be freed from the sin's temptation. Spiritual believers who truly love brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we want to continue to spend time with them in a one-on-one way. James 5 speaks to this. Listen, confess your sins to one another, James 5, 16, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So we don't go it alone. Well, burden bearing, verse 2 says it fulfills the law of Christ. And we've talked a lot about the law and the law of Christ, so I won't belabor this, but I can't resist to just talk about this for a moment. What does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? Paul here is taking a side glance at the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers were piling on 
false requirements for a pseudo-holiness within the church, saying you can be holy through this counterfeit measure of ceremonialism. Just be circumcised. Later on in this chapter, he, they're talking about how the Judaizers were, were counting converts to circumcision, saying, listen, you can truly be holy if you'll just go through this doorway of obedience. And Paul is saying, no. You fulfill the law of Christ not by piling burdens on. You fulfill the law of Christ by pulling burdens off. So your Judaizers, you Judaizers are piling on with a false use of old covenant law. And I'm saying that you actually fulfill the intent of the old covenant in the new covenant by bearing each other's burdens. You want to fulfill the Old Testament, the intent of the Old Testament? Then fulfill this command. This command actually ties back together if you look at verse 13 of chapter 5. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You're free. You're not under this kind of bondage. But through love, serve one another. Love people. Serve people. And then verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, embedded in that command is the double love of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then you love your neighbors yourself. When you have a focus of worshiping God and loving Him with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and a focus of others-centeredness where you're saying, I want to I be aware of someone's burden. I don't want to be bound up in conceit. I want to throw that off. I don't want to be a a provoking person. I don't want to be a person who's caught up in vain glories. I want to reach out to someone in love as a neighbor. Then you are fulfilling what the law was meant to fulfill. Yes, the old covenant has, has been done away with. We're not under that anymore. But in the new covenant, there is a tie to the old covenant law in the sense that we fulfill the intent of it by love, by love. Paul makes a link between what's been abolished and what has come. 1 Corinthians 9.21 says that he literally, to reach people who were under the law or outside, he would go under the law, but outside of the law, he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So Paul was saying, I don't follow the old covenant law. I'm, I'm done with that in the gospel. And at the same time, I am under the law of Christ. What does that mean? That means he's interpreting the intent of the law Christocentrically. What do I mean by that? It means that he's thinking through the law in terms of how Christ lived it while he was on earth. He lived it out in a loving way. He's the ultimate example, the unsurpassable example of love. He's the ultimate fulfillment of be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is why Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. John 13, 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are loving one another. Romans 13, 8 and 10, we won't go there again, but all of the New Test, I mean the Old Testament Ten Commandments are fulfilled in terms of love. When you love God and you love neighbor, you're doing those commandments automatically. You're not coveting, you're not stealing. You're not taking, you're not worshiping other gods, you're not doing those things 
as a New Testament Christian. Those who have the Holy Spirit can fulfill the law of Christ and not fall into the yoke of slavery. Look, the Jerusalem Council, we thought this was dealt with, right? But Paul is again putting a stake in the ground saying, this is how you fulfill the law of Christ. It's joy-centered. It's not following a code. Listen to this quote. Bear others' burdens, and by doing this, you follow in the footsteps of Christ who bore yours. He bore your burdens. Well, how does this come down to earth again? People around you are raising children. People around you are renovating their homes. People around you are struggling financially. People around you are struggling with sicknesses. People around you are in need of your help. You say, I can't find God's will for my life. Well, guess what? God's will might be finding you even this morning as you think about the needs of others and ways that you can get involved and serve them. A lot of times, Serving others in the body of Christ in ways that seem very mundane become very, very powerfully effective for what God wants to do. Some of the most simple activities can seem mundane. This might seem like a, an interesting or strange illustration, but do you remember when Moses was, was praying over the battle in Exodus of the Israelites? They had been freed from Egypt and they were fighting the Amalekites and it's it says in Exodus 17, 11, and 12, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. So he's praying, holding his hand up. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under his arm. This is Aaron and Hur. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. While his hands were held up, Israel was victorious. When they would drop, Israel would be falling off. We don't know God's purposes. We don't know whose hands we're supposed to be holding up. But that service where you're not getting credit, you're not getting glory for it, it's behind the scenes where you're holding someone's arms up spiritually, can be accomplishing great things that we just don't even anticipate or know about. Spurgeon said this, and I thought it was good. This is what happens in church all the time. The good woman who always looks so smiling, but she has a skeleton at home in her cupboard. And that good brother who is always bright and cheery, yes, he has a burden too. Do not begin to say, oh, but I am so much worse off than he is. You do not know what he has to endure. Now, how do you do this? Guess what? If you want to bear someone's burden, you have to draw close to him or her. You actually have to get inside the person's shoes. Superficial social relationships won't do it. Showing favoritism to people, that won't do it. You have to enter in with a mindset like this. You're willing to draw near to anyone who needs you to draw near to him or her. Did you hear that? We don't want to force ourselves upon people, right? And say, hey, you know, I know you have this need. I'm coming. And they said, no, you're not. But you draw near to people that need you to draw near to them. And you know it when you see it. All right, well, we've belabored that a long time. Point four, recognize your own weakness. Again, we repent. These are motivations. Motivations of self 
Um, Self-examination and repentance. We rescue, we remove obstacles, we remove burdens, and then we recognize our own weakness while we're doing it. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. He's lying to himself. Proud people are warned about this self-deception, thinking that they are something. When we're a burden bearer, I guess some kind of pride can creep in and it can disqualify us where we are bound up in our own conceit, our own self-glory. It disqualifies us from seeing and fulfilling the need meeting that needs to be done within the body of Christ. A sad reality is that people who do not help others in their struggles, they live in isolation and they suffer from the guilt of their own pride in living in isolation. A way to get through your own depression, through your own distress, through your own problems is by actually repenting of that and moving towards other people. This kind of pride, it... it, crops up in a person's heart where they believe that they're immune to the temptations that other people are going through. You, you kind of stand out as an arrogant person who's willing to cut yourself off from others when really what verse 3 says, you think you're something, you're deluded, your mind has gone astray literally, and you're nothing. You're caught up in some kind of dream, some sort of subjective fantasy. C.S. Lewis said this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I, um, I think I can tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. C.S. Lewis was pretty, uh, pretty deep here, right? So this is a biggish step. He said, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. This again ties together with doing things in a spirit of gentleness, taking the log out before you go for somebody else. Conceit cannot coexist. Conceit rather can coexist with outward morality, but it can't coexist with genuine spirituality. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 about this. This was his testimony. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mystery of God. It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged or by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. When is it that you're willing to serve other people? It's when you're willing to stop judging other people, to allow the Lord to judge your own life, and for you to recognize that you're doing things for God's glory and his own commendation, not your own. Entertaining a false opinion of of yourself when you think you're something and you're really nothing. Is this an exaggeration? Are we really that bad? We are. The Holy Spirit will tell you you're that bad. Have you ever prayed this prayer? God, show me how proud I really am. Who's ever prayed that? Right? Some of you. 
And who's ever watched God really, really make you fall on your face, right? Right after you pray that prayer and you're exposed and you say, wow, I'm that bad and I'm worse. I'm far worse than I thought I was. Jonathan Edwards said it's inexpressible and inconceivable how strong a self-righteous and self-exalting disposition is naturally in man and what he will not do and suffer to feed and gratify it. Remember Paul in chapter 2, if you'll just indulge me and go back a few chapters. Remember in verse 2, he was talking about the Jerusalem council and he was bringing Titus along and introducing a Gentile into the flock down in Jerusalem saying he doesn't need to be circumcised. He doesn't need to follow external laws. And he had to go into the high court of Peter, James, and John to talk to them about this. This is verse 2. He says, though privately he, he went... Before those who seemed influential. Paul's being a little sarcastic here. Saying that Peter, James, and John are on this sort of exalted pedestal. Whether they know it or not. Whether they're thinking there's something or not. He's not being explicit. But he's being sarcastic to show that we're all on the same playing field. Verse 6. And those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. They didn't teach me the gospel. Jesus did. They're just men. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas, who's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship um, to Barnabas and me and that we should go to the Gentiles and they too to the circumcised. So it's dangerous to... Be caught up within ourselves. It's dangerous to our own spiritual life. But let's go to the last and final or second to last point here, which is to rely on God's spirit and truth. That's verse 4. What do we do? We come out of the mindset of verse 3 and we go right into the testing and examination of verse 4. But let each one test his own work. This is dokimos. This is examination. Testing your own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. This is a verse that is saying there's a healthy path forward for examination. A lot of times when we think of an exam or a test, we get nervous. We don't want to look inwardly. We would rather just look outwardly. We'd rather compare ourselves to someone out here and say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person is, and so I'm doing better than that person is, and so I'm okay. And that kind of side comparison will leave you where you are spiritually instead of entering you into the spiritual ministry of serving each other. Examining isn't always a negative thing. The Puritans actually believed it was a necessary part of the spiritual life that we must examine ourselves. And this is an examination that's in light of the future. We're to test our own work in view of heaven, in view of a future day, which verse 5 will seal up for us. We're relating to each other on the basis of a future examination. We examine ourselves now, but we're examining ourselves in light of a future glory. And ultimately, the boasting here might sound odd. If you look at um, verse 4, it says, Then his reason to boast will be in himself. Are we supposed to be proud and arrogant within ourselves? No. This is not some kind of autonomous boasting 
This is not individual boasting. This is the kind of boasting where we say, okay, I'm now not comparing myself to someone else. I'm not boasting or bragging in a fleshly way. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit and the word to examine me. I'm relying on the truth and I'm saying, God, use your word to show me who I really am. And then at that point, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can find some satisfaction in the fact that God is examining me and I'm not examining myself in light of other people. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, chapter 10, verse 12. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. You hear that word boasting over and over again, and it's not boasting that is worldly, selfish boasting where you're trying to build yourself up. So many people will, will mask spirituality by saying, look, I'm esteeming Christ in me and I'm feeling good about myself. No, the idea is to think less of yourself, to think about others and boast not in yourself, but what Second Corinthians here says, verse 17, to boast in, it says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, Second Corinthians 10 Verse 17, God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not grading us in light of other people. He's actually grading us in terms of his own holiness. But as he grades us, he's grading us through grace. Believers are warned against deceiving themselves or overestimating themselves. And this is disqualifying. All right, let's go to our last point. Last of all, we regard future judgment as our accountability, verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. Now, immediately you're going to say, doesn't this contradict what Paul said in verse 2? We're to bear each other's burdens, and now each one's to bear his own load? The word bear actually is two different Greek words. It is used in the same context, but Paul is talking to two different dynamics that happen in the Christian life. First of all, there are burdens that are the Barah burden uh, of verse 2, where we are bearing loads in each other's lives that are too much for one individual in the Christian life to bear on his own. He's been ensnared in sin. He's been trapped in sin. He's bearing a circumstance that's a a life-threatening or life-altering circumstance where the body of Christ needs to rally around that person. Someone needs to intimately enter into that person and hold up that person's arm or arms through that trial. That's what Paul's been talking about, where we bear one another's burdens. Right here in verse 5, where we bear our own load, this is a different Greek word. This is the idea of bearing our own backpack. 
It's the word used for a military pack. It's the kind of circumstance and struggle that God has called you to bear individually and not corporately. It's actually the kind of work that you have to examine yourself regarding because one day when you're in heaven, though you've had people bear burdens with you on earth, In heaven, you will stand and you will bear that individual load in your own accountability before your maker who will be the one who is examining you and will judge you accordingly. So Paul is giving the reason why we should examine our own work. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? He gave the exhortation, as we said already in chapter 5, verse 10, that those who are false are going to bear their own penalty. We don't want to do that. Paul's emphasis is believers, um, not just supporting each other, but here individually recognizing that one day they're going to stand alone before God on the day of judgment. Why does he say this? Again, it comes full circle. It's combating conceit. It's combating pride. We all are given individual circumstances, individual situations, individual struggles that we have to deal with in our own life that God will work with us on and will judge us on according to a, a, a parent's judgment on the last day. This is all in light of the future judgment. If you look at chapter 6, verse 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will also he will reap. Those who sow in the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. This is talking in terms of a future judgment in terms of how we sowed and how we will reap in the future. One person said, if we want to kill conceit, we must keep the horizon of judgment always in view. Martin Luther said, these words are forceful enough to frighten us thoroughly so that we do not yearn for vain glory. Someone said, the prospect of standing before the bar of heaven and the majesty of the risen Lord to give an account for every careless word should be sobering. Matthew 12 and Romans 14. Romans 14, 1 through 12 talks about this specifically. Gazing at the final judgment ought to be a regular part of your Christian discipleship. It's a poison. Martin Luther called this the pride of life, a poisonous vice that the Holy Spirit alone is able to preserve us from, from being infected by this poison. So this kind of backpack load, this um, fortion load that we bear is not the same heavy load that we bear with each other. This is the, the pack we bear on that day. You, can, you cannot carry with other people. Each man has to bear his own load. I think a lot of times that we shrug off holiness in view of the future because we say, well, I'm saved, I'm secure, I'm under a no condemnation status, and all of that is true. Romans 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of the life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. We understand that. We're not earning our way to heaven. I'll be thankful just to be in heaven. But I know that as a teacher, James 3, 1 says that there's a stricter judgment. What does that mean? 
Romans 14 speaks of one day we'll stand before our master and we will be judged. What does that mean for God's searchlight to be on us? I don't know. I know that there's a sense in which that which we build up in this lifetime, that's hay, wood, and stubble, will be burned away as we stand before the Bema seat, judgment of God. I know that's true. And I know that we'll suffer loss for that. There'll be some measure of grief in that, some level of accountability in that. We need to be thinking about that. It needs to measure our holiness. It needs to help us. When people are in need around us, we need to be willing to reach out. I mean, in one sense, the Western mindset of individualism needs to be repented of where we are willing to get out there for other people. As Warren Wiersbe put it, he said, if the car breaks down and your neighbor um, needs you to drive his or her children to school, we should assume that responsibility. And at the same time, we don't need to be overly needy regarding what we have to bear as our own load in this lifetime. It's wrong to expect that someone else will be the father or mother of our children. We can't dump or dish our spiritual responsibilities on to others. We have to care for those things within our own life. Having this mindset, by the way, where you realize that there's future judgment will help you not be as critical on other people. I think uh, when people are irritable, when people are struggling, it's easy to put yourself above them. Instead, we should say, you know, I don't know what pressure that person is facing or what level of emotional self-control he or she is, is dealing with, but maybe he or she is actually obeying God better than I am today. So the Christian life, is it private or is it public? The answer is, let's say it together, yes, it's both. It is something that is community-oriented, and it is something that we are accountable to viewing our final reward that will be given in view of the final judgment. So we have to care for each other now, and we also have to bear our own individual backpack. So let's be willing to walk that balanced Christian life and be a healthy church and a holy church to a watching world.